This episode is brought to you by Kensington's newest title, The Most Eligible Bride in London by Ella Quinn. I really hope that Ella Quinn is a pen name and it's a pun on eloquent. <laughs> Let me tell you about this book. Perfect for the Bridgerton binge watcher. USA Today bestselling author Ella Quinn is known for her passion-filled and witty take on the glittering world of the ton in Regency London. Reviewers have compared her favorably to Lisa Kleypas, Tessa Dare, Julia Quinn, and even Jane Austen herself. The inventor of the ton. With the third book in her charming Lords of London series, a former rogue on the path to reputation redemption is drawn to the sister of a woman he once wronged. Can he make amends and prove he has turned over a new leaf? Can she put aside a family grudge and look towards a new future? Ooh, Ella Quinn is the USA Today bestselling author of smart and spicy Regency romances, including The Worthingtons, The Marriage Game, and the aforementioned Lords, uh, Lords uh, of London series. Uh, she has extensively researched the Regency era, immersing her stories with the flavor and feel of the period so that re- readers lose themselves in the time. But did she, like the author of Venetia, find the one and only letter contemporaneously written so that she could use it in her book? To call someone a cake. To call someone a cake. All insults are historically accurate and specific to one person. That's how you know a (laughs) book is well researched. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but I will, just like you, seek out this book because Lisa Kleypas, Tessa Dare, I mean, funny Regencies are a delight. It's true. And if you're looking for this book, you can find The Most Eligible Bride in London by Ella Quinn, wherever books are sold. Find out more at kensingtonbooks.com. Direct. Direct. Okay. That's the end. We want to take a second to thank you for supporting Womance by listening to our podcast. One great way that you can continue supporting us, including those listens, is hitting subscribe, telling a friend, leaving a review. That stuff all really matters. Sharing it on your personal social media is another great way to spread the word about Womance. And another option for supporting us, if we may be so bold, is to recommend going to our Patreon, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us spread the word of woe. If you want to contribute more than a dollar a month which obviously no pressure whatever you've got we are so appreciative to have but we have awesome gifts for you if you want a hand addressed letter from morgan and isabeau maybe with some special whoa stickers other merch just uh visit our patreon we are womance on patreon or is it patreon.com forward slash womance we would be very proud to call you one of our patrons I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About tucking in your tentacles. About ancient gods. About magical private eyes. About falling in love. About falling into another dimension. About having conversations about what going slow means. About not going slow at all. (laughs) About shaking down museum attendants. Um, But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week, we are waking the darkly dreaming Asquidentally in Love. By K.L. Hires. So, Isabeau, you picked this book. I did. Will you read the back of the book and tell us what intrigued you about this particular text? Certainly. Let me pull that up. It's a sucker for love mystery, which was obviously the number one thing. I was like, a sucker for love, me. (laughs) The puns start and they don't stop coming. They don't stop coming. Nothing brings two men, 
or one man and an ancient god together like revenge. Private investigator Sloan sacrificed his career in law enforcement in pursuit of his parents' murderer. Like them, he's a follower of long-forgotten gods, practicing their magic and offering them his prayers. Not that he's ever gotten a response until now. As a thoth, the lesser, might be the patron of thieves and tricksters, but he takes care of his followers. He's come to Earth to avenge the killing of one of his favorites and maybe charm the pants off the cute detective fate has placed in his path. If he has his way, they'll do much more than bring a killer to justice. In fact, he's sure he's found the man he'll spend his immortal life with. Sloane's resolve is crumbling under Azathoth's surprising sweetness, and the tentacles he sometimes glimpses escaping the god's mortal form set his imagination alight, but their investigation gets stranger and deadlier with every turn. To survive, they'll need a little faith and a lot of mystical firepower. I chose this because it had normal looking dude with tentacles coming out of his back and a beautiful purple cover. I love purple. I don't think it's actually used enough in romance novels. And the other thing longtime listeners know about me is that I love tentacles. I think they're fascinating both on all sea creatures, specifically cuttlefish and octopi. And I'm deeply interested. At first, I was looking for a Kraken novel for our monster march. But then I got this and I was like, this might scratch that Kraken itch. Yeah, because like he's a squid monster, but he's definitely a reference to Thulu because everyone is uh, all of these old gods like Thulu was an old god are asleep and dreaming until they're awoken by a particularly compelling prayer. And uh, then they show up to fuck shit up. Mostly destroy the world. Yeah, which is very Thulu. Very Thulu. Um, which is interesting. Like, I remember there was a time when Thulu was all the rage. Yes. Um, mostly among people who frequented Reddit. Yes. A lot of those Thulu references, I don't think the people actually were familiar with H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, noted writer and noted racist. And the twain met many a time. Uh, and... It's interesting because, like, there are, and there are also, like, specific, like, cosmic references. The creature, the monster, uh, who we come to know as Locke, is not a particularly pin-downable form. Even in his, like, full, like, natural embodiment, when he's not just, like, stuffing himself into a human corpse, is, uh, and literally, I mean, like, he's wearing, like, a corpse as a suit, yeah, all of men in black. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, all of men in black. He has like his feet are galaxies, and it doesn't sound like he has like a little bulbous head or anything. It sounds like he's just a mass of tentacles. One of which, the largest one, in fact, the largest one, in fact, is. What is it? Knot. This has knotting in it, uh, which if you don't know, Mm -hmm. I want you to find the nearest work computer, log on to the corporate VPN, and search knotting, K-N-O-T-T-I-N-G, fan fiction. Don't do that on your work computer, though. Like, for the love of God. (laughs) I was not expecting knotting in a tentacle monster piece, but why not? Because... Books and writing is where your imagination takes wing. Yes. Uh, and nodding, nodding is related to uh, like uh, the alphaverse and like canine species. And it does happen in real life uh, to real canines. And it's awful. But that's where we get puppies from. So it's also beautiful. Yeah. Uh, so his largest tentacle is a big black knotted <laughs> dick. Yeah. Yeah. It's bulbous uh, and ribbed. And like 10 inches long at the tip. But he has like four phallus, penis. I'm going to say penis rather than phallus because I feel like all of his tentacles are a phallus. Four of his tentacles are a penis. Yep, that's correct. But some of his penises can give and receive. Uh, The other three, in fact, can give and receive. Right. Just not the big knotted one. No, that one. It's just for giving. (laughs) So it's like 
there's quite a few like niche. So sex wise, there's quite a few like niche interests here. Milking and nodding. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know what milking is, you know what to do with your work computer. <laughs> this is this is the way that you're going to join the great resignation. <laughs> This is it. This is your opportunity. I will give people a heads up. You do not get paid unemployment if you are fired. Log that into your American brain. Keep that in your mind. Yeah. While, but I mean, don't not do it. <laughs> Fuck around and find out. Yeah. But just know this is not a, a, a monetarily beneficial choice for you. Um, basically... Our main character believes in what is considered a dying religion in a world full of magic. Mm -hmm. He is a sage when everyone else around him or the majority of folks around him believe in the one god, the god of light, Lucian, who seems sort of like a monotheistic, worse Old Testament, regular Christian lord. Um, And so the sages are kind of uh, marginalized. They have to be registered if they can use magic. And they have all of these uh, ancient festivals that have been co-opted by the Lord of Light folks. And it turns out that the sages are, with Sagittarians, um, are the real, are the real, they believe in the true gods. It's just those gods are taking a big cosmic nap. Um, and our main character is very magically gifted, um, and his parents were murdered in front of him, uh, not unlike Batman. And not unlike Batman, he becomes a detective. But then he gets fired because he was uh, using his publicly funded job to pursue personal interests, not unlike the cannibal cop, who was not thought-crimed. He committed very real crimes. So if anyone tries to tell you otherwise, please point out that he was looking at cannibal pornography on the clock of the New York City police. And he was using New York City police uh, equipment to help him uh, stalk the victims he was just pretending about. So did you know that, Isabel? I didn't. So on the spectrum of public servant (laughs) abusing time and resources of the public trust, Mm -hmm. you've said it at Cannibal Cop and investigating my mom and dad's brutal murder in front of me when I was a child as the spectrum. Which technically, I would say yes. Yes, that's the spectrum. Because, right, finding out who murdered your parents and their unsolved murder is also serving a public good. You should be trying to solve unsolved murders. I agree. I I was going to say that. There's probably a doctor rule that you can't investigate your own crime. You're a little too close to it. Yeah, you might make a mistake. And in fact, he did. He did make a mistake because he got caught and he got fired. So he's been working as a private investigator. His main magic is that he can drink a lot and then extract it in a liquid bubble from his uh, tummy. Which is super cool because then he drives home and he's very safe and he's like, oh, I drank too much. Let me just extract all the alcohol from my body and I was like man that would have been super useful in college love that spell so we meet Sloan at a not Halloween but is Halloween party thrown by his friend who's still a full-time cop who is also a Lucian who has started dating a woman who is a sage and she's gonna bring her brother who is just Sloan's type and he's handsome and charming um and then the next thing Sloan knows he wakes up the next morning in his PI office and he's looking at Lachlan, this brother who he hit it off with again, uh, except it's not really Lachlan. It's not. He's more charming and more beautiful and more sinister by the light of day. And it's because Azathoth found the corpse of Lachlan and he inhabited it so that he can find out who killed Lachlan because Lachlan was one of his favorites. Yeah, one of his favorite worshippers. Uh, And he met with foul play. Now, even gods have their limits, though. So he can't just, like, figure it out on his own. He has to, he reaches out. Yeah. He starts with the last person known to have been in contact with Lachlan. And it just happens to be a PI who just happens to be secretly touched by starlight, uh, which is a big deal. Big magical deal. And also just happens uh, 
to be handsome, to be a bit of a looker. A little bit of a sweetheart. So they team up to solve this murder uh, because Sloan is sad for his friend's girlfriend. And uh, through their sleuthing together, they discover that the murder is linked to his long dead parents' murder. Uh, which, thank goodness, because it really would have been a waste of his time otherwise. Totally. And it has to do with putting together an ancient key and awakening dead gods. There's twists. There's turns. And the tentacles kind of seem like the least of it by the end of the book. The tentacles are definitely the least <laughs> of it by the end. That's super true. So one of the things – how do I want to put this? One of the things – like I had I was frustrated with is that I think this book has a one really good story and one really good mystery but it needed to be confident in its readership or even its own ability to explain things the first time because it, it across this text I found that scenes that should have only been like one or two pages were taking up four or five pages. So I also noted this and the thing that it began to make me feel like is that what I thought was the creature feature of the week of an episode of Buffy or the X-Files was actually the whole season monster. And so we kept getting these recaps at very weird points. And exactly as you said, they took a really long time. And I'm like, this is all information that I got 50 pages ago and can definitely remember because you, this book does not introduce too many characters. The religion it's dealing with is very well explained in the first two chapters. So like, even if I had questions, which I didn't, I would have just assumed that like it would have come through. And so like, whenever we re-encounter someone or meet someone new that we have to explain everything all over again felt very much like an episodic tv show that's trying to remind you what happened two weeks ago between the creature features to get to the big bad of the season arc i would say it gave off the impression of someone like of a story that wants desperately to be understood and then overstates mm -hmm. and thus creates like a muddling mm -hmm. or a sense of exhaustion. Or a sense of boredom. Because it slows down the pace. Yeah. Like anything that's going to be like a crime or a thriller, which I think this is aspiring towards, you got to keep a good clip. And the other thing is, is like, it, but it doesn't just do that with like the explanation of where we've been and where we're going. It also kind of overdoes it with the like witty dialogue. Like, there's witty dialogue, but then it goes on and on and on and on. And the banter, it's a little, the banter I felt was a little bloated. I felt like the sex scenes, it was like someone was, like, talking through it as opposed to telling it. I, I agree. I was charmed by the banter until I wasn't. Which is also how I feel about the early seasons of Buffy, right? Where it's like, somebody is really getting their sea legs mm, about mm -hmm. show don't tell and <laughs> when it's appropriate to tell and yeah I think it's very clear to me that this text takes a lot of joy in the puns but a good pun needs to kind of stand like the tallest tree in the yeah. field a little bit for it to be most effective and it's like if you've got 11 puns on the page like any one of them's fine, but like now it's too many. There's just a real excitement around the ideas, but you don't have to put all of your good ideas into one book. Mm -hmm. You can write more than one book. Mm -hmm. That was my main frustration. I think that's a fair frustration. Well, thank you. I want to ask how you felt about the love at first sight slash insta-love between Sloan and as a thought slash lock. Yeah, I would like to know how you feel about it because I did not clock like a love at first sight insta love thing in this text. And I also would like to know the difference between, well, like I understood there was a difference between love at first sight and insta love, but are they used interchangeably? Maybe I'm just using them interchangeably. I understood that insta love is like kind of pejorative in romance landia yeah like insta love is just a pe pejorative term for love at first sight yeah yeah 
I understood insta love as being like an immediately like like a love at first sight can be unspoken and people can be like reserved and like unwilling to even admit it to themselves but like insta love is like effusive Mm -hmm. as well as immediate sound off in the comments which one do you think it is (laughs) well I think it's insta love for Azathoth like he is immediately like all up in Sloane's business and it was Interesting to have arguably the more powerful character, the, you know, God the Lesser, get real cuddly real fast. And I think, like, part of the insta-love move of this was to, like, show him as, like, charming and disarming and, like, funny. And, like, it just... And I'm, like, a god of tricksters, a god Mm -hmm. of thieves. I'm, like... I'm not opposed to the idea of like one of the things that he is is disarming and that he really likes British baking shows yeah. and then like uses those terms colloquially. Like I'm fine with all of that, but like he was like real hot and heavy real fast and Sloane was like, whoa, slow down. And he's like, of course I'll slow down. And then they don't. And then I was like, ah, there's like, I don't know how I feel about this like massive power. <laughs> differential and it was weird to see insta love used as a way to disarm the power differential i didn't understand Locke slash azathoth as being in love immediately with sloan but definitely open to a sexual experience with sloan so i felt like that azathoth coming on hot and heavy was more of a way to show that, like, Sloan was empowered because Sloan was able to say no and set boundaries and kind of move those boundaries as Sloan saw fit. As opposed to, like, a lot of, like, it's not like if a romance novel, like, we've definitely read books where, like, the boundaries are crossed, period, right? And this didn't feel like that to me. And I think that served to, like, counterbalance the, uh, that served to counterbalance the power differential between this god and the mortal, right? Like, there's clearly a fish-out-of-water element to Azathoth's presence. He marvels at, I think, Kitchen Nightmares. The one, my favorite Kitchen night. I think it's everyone's favorite, is when Gordon Ramsay picked up two pieces of bread and held them on either side of a contestant's head and said, what are you? <laughs> yeah, that's definitely. <laughs> said, an idiot sandwich chef. An idiot sandwich. <laughs> that's clearly this author's favorite one because that's the episode and then the meme that Azathoth continues to reference. Yeah, I wish romance novels didn't reference memes, but I think like other people like that kind of humor, you know? Um I And so if you're one of those people, then you'll like it. <laughs> I I don't care for uh, memes. I like it. I, I just don't like references as humor, even though I just did it. <laughs> I think it's hard not to. We're an incredibly like <laughs> high context, high referential culture. And like, especially now, like the internet has like, I think, put that on steroids. But it's weird because this is like an Earth, not Earth. And so like the parts of Earth that are the same, like Gordon Ramsay and the like idiot sandwich meme. But also like you've got old gods and you've got this like Lord of Light business and you've got like People have to, like, register their magical powers. Right. And so then it's like, well, why would we have Gordon Ramsay? And it's so clearly that, like, we know it's that. So, like, there's, like, that kind of... It, you need to do it so well to hold both of those things together. Otherwise, it just feels sort of like a a referential soup that just, like... It's like, I know how cool you are. You're already writing about an old god. You don't need to show me that you also get the memes. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's a it's yeah, I think that's why it kind of irks me is that I don't want my book to try and be cool and it seems to be like whenever you include specific pop culture references that you're trying to be like, "Hey, you and me, right guys? Like we're friends." Like I don't want my romance novel to try and be my pal. I want it to be aloof. <laughs> I want to unlock it. Yeah. I want to expend yeah. the energy. I don't want to, yeah, I bring the pick me energy to my relationship <laughs> with romance novels. I don't want it vice versa, okay? 
I I enjoy the chase. <laughs> Although, like, I'm like, I think that's astute. I think that's a hundred percent it, Isabeau. I think you tapped into it. I don't want my romance novel to want me. I also like books that like exist in their own like little discreet packages. And the idea of like a book like leeching into my kitchen nightmares viewing. Yeah, I think leeching is the right term or like the slippage is like it's just not fun because it takes you out of the book and puts you into your actual space. And like that's not what this that's not why I show up to this experience. Right. The other thing I noted about this book because we're kind of getting towards world building and also like a lot of the books that we've chosen is that it feels like this monster romance is kind of like a natural evolution of shifter romance but also urban fantasy specifically absolutely because like the idea of a hard-boiled pi this also reminds me of i don't know if you read this series anonymous rex mm-hmm which was about an Earth, not Earth, where dinosaurs wear human suits and one of them is a private investigator. Uh, <laughs> this reminded, obviously, this book uh, has some parallels with that. But yeah, like the private investigator, the urban environment, this idea of like, you gotta, like, magic comes into it as something you have to register at like a police office. How do you think, like, what do you, th- like, I, I can see. The glowing lights of that highway, you know, leading up to monster romance. But I've never had much of an interest in urban fantasy. Why? I don't. Because of everything we just <laughs> yeah, talked about? Maybe, no. I, I guess I'm a bit of a, yeah, I, you know I like to compartmentalize. And so I feel like fantasy already lives in like a forest. <laughs> I understand the desire to put it in skyscrapers, but like. Why? I don't understand it, actually. What is the appeal of urban fantasy? Is it just like (laughs) contrast? I don't know what the appeal of urban fantasy is because this is also not a space that I spend a lot of time in. And I will say that I've read exactly one highly successful urban fantasy where it did a really great job of melding the elements and and like justifying the existence of the subgenre as like a good space to investigate questions. And part of that, I think, was because... It wasn't New York or like a, a loosely identifiable, loosely identifiable metropolis, sort of like Gotham City or whatever. It was very specifically Minneapolis, Minnesota, <laughs> and I think a because I'm like vaguely familiar with that city, but also because of the way in which like that urban landscape really blends into its non-urban spaces very quickly like there are a ton of parks there like it's you drive 10 minutes outside of the city and you're suddenly in rural Minnesota and so like it wasn't that the urban fantasy part of it like the city had encroached on the fantasy part like the city had like cannibalized this fantasy space and so like the fantasy elements the pixies the pukas the fairies were trying to figure out how to adapt like raccoons or urban coyotes and I thought that was a really interesting way to talk about urban encroachment on wild spaces yeah and so like that kind of justification I think is really really interesting but otherwise it's like okay it's magic here but why like why? Yeah, I would like I would be interested in suburban fantasy. People uh with houses on a quarter of an acre or something, I don't know, like ranch style homes, but also they're fae. Yeah, and I think that's part of I mean, I don't know if this is part of the reason why Twilight works, but like the fact that it's a small town where it's like, yeah, that makes sense that vampires would hang out in forks. There's not a lot going on, which means that you can kind of just be innocuous. I would like more shopping malls. Like Forks, Washington was like a little too quaint. And I feel like Forks, like a small town's a little too quaint and a big city is a little bit too like on the nose. But this because it's like the urban jungle anyways. And so like you have like the anonymity and like the shadows or whatever. But if you go to the suburbs, now that seems like a highly contrived that like the shape of water. I really liked the shape of water and that's suburban fantasy. That's true. That's interesting. Like urban fantasy feels like it's it's just trying to put like a mo- like put uh, it it feels like it's trying to put a Thulu on a motorcycle. It is trying to do that. And I think 
you were right when you're like, ah, the hard-boiled PI. It's like, I know so many urban fantasies that have a detective or a private eye. And so then it's like, it's not just like urban fantasies trying to put Thulu on a motorcycle or fairies in a bar um, and like playing with whatever punk fairy scene or whatever. But it's also like, it's Gotham City specifically and the PI is Batman without a cape. And instead of having like the utility belt, it's magic. And then it's like, well, kind of feels like a lot of mush where it's like, I've, I've seen this movie before. Why, why do you need to make these changes? Because like, I think urban fantasy needs to do a little more self-justification for me to, for me to understand why the structures function the way they do. Yeah. And not that this book does it, but I also find that whenever someone's bringing in a private eye, we can get like a little copaganda-y where it's like, look at how effective this person is operating outside of the law. (laughs) Um, But this book doesn't do that. He's just a, you know, a lot of real life PIs just spend their time like finding people who have gone missing and trailing spouses um and i i kind of wish like this character had been like a work a day pi he obviously like handled like kind of bigger cases um and then was pulled into this case by the god but i like i see this is one of those books that like i see a really great text here with a little bit of editing Mm -hmm. but i also see a writer who i think probably came up through Fan fiction, because I saw, like, I started to, in spite of myself, like, I'm not even, like, a Marvel movie person, but I started to picture the, what's his name, Tom Hiddleston's performance of Loki in reading the banter, and, like, the insistence on, like, a trickster god who doesn't play any mean tricks kind of feels like a defanging of a low-key character, which would be something you would want to do if you were writing, or a lot of people would want to do if they were writing low-key fan fiction, but keeping, like, all the banter and asides and the handsome face and everything. I think that's exactly right. A trickster god who doesn't play any mean tricks. A trickster god who is actually, like, a huge-ass cinnamon roll. Like, there's so many points where we watch him, like, compassionately take care of others and, like, explain things to Sloane very nicely and softly. I just... I think that's exactly right. Like, I don't know. How do you have a trickster god who, like, isn't actually interested in playing mean tricks or even, like, pranks that have more danger? Because they don't. He is just a massive, tentacled, big penis cinnamon roll. Yeah. And it almost seems like having a trickster god as one of your love interests is kind of an easy way to build legitimate conflict like his nature is to be dishonest so how do you build trust and you know faith right and faith would be an inborn question of a god yeah those questions were not raised in this text at all i mean faith was to a certain extent but like it was very clear from the beginning, as a as a thought or Locke even says that he wants to be monogamous. And like that also feels like anti-trickster. It also seems anti-God. <laughs> polytheistic God, you know? Like I've never heard of a polytheistic god who was monogamous yeah and he like throws out i mean if you wanted multiple partners and we could talk about it but like you're my main squeeze and it's fine if it's just us i guess i had like more expectations than i was aware of going into this text than were totally surfaced and conscious for me because i'm talking about like things that kind of let me down about it and it's like why would a book let you down Unless you, yeah, which, like, having expectations for a book is such a silly thing to do. Don't you think? I mean, but it's hard not to, right? Like, you saw that cover, you saw that amazing title, Esquidentally in Love. I'm like, there's so much working here that spoke directly to both you and me about stuff that we like. Even the, I would say, like, the subconscious references are also stuff that we like. Like, it feels 
you know, creature featurey and like it's dealing with like interesting stuff. It like brings up religion. It brings up cool ways of world building. There's a heist. There's a crime that has to be solved and a cold case. Like there, there's so much here that you and I would both be appealed by. I also came into this book with expectations and like some of them were met and some of them were just like totally blown past. And it's like, I think you're right to say that just even surfacing what my expectations were for a monster book is good in and of itself because I did. I didn't know that I had specific expectations for what this book would be or what a monster book would be, but I do. I think it's, I I guess I'm just like a little disappointed in myself for having, realizing I had expectations because I, I think having expectations for a book sets you up more to be disappointed than surprised or sets like a higher bar, you know? And I don't think that's, necessarily what I want to be as a reader especially not of something not of a romance novel about a Thulu monster falling in love right and I think what's interesting to me about this conversation around expectations is like I went into the flesh and the devil with no expectations I was like it could be anything and I have no idea what it is the idea that I didn't go into this book like that because clearly I didn't speaks to me about this idea where it's like the less you know about something the more like it creates that vacuum right where like we've been talking about this in Jane Eyre where it's like if you don't explain what you are people are just going to project what they think onto you and like I haven't read enough monster books to let go of my bad or good expectations of monster books and like I think that's what this is showing me Yeah, I certainly think I'm putting a lot of strange love onto my expectations of like the sex scenes. But I feel like in that way, this book really succeeds. I mean, like this stuff is very much like this is a hole and this is a thing that goes into a hole, which is a little bit less creative than strange love and like we mentioned at the top like it makes a lot of references that have long existed on the internet but I still think that like approaching something considered that like niche and outsider with like a real sense of like and here's what it looks like with open communication (laughs) things like that it was really effective actually I thought so too I um was especially delighted by the discussion of double penetration before we got to the knotted tentacle penis um both about like how desire can build on itself and like how to ask for what you want and more of that and i i think this book did such a good job of explaining like you know terms that you see on the internet in reference to all sorts of sex and it did so in a way that was never condescending or patronizing and felt really true to the two characters themselves. Yeah. It had a sense of like levity, but it had a sense of levity in the fact that like nothing bad or or, or overly intense is happening here. Right. And that this is truly a pleasure space. In fact, like for the sex scene that we're talking about, uh, Locke, the the god, transports Sloane to an astral bed in Zebulon, the realm of the gods. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just a regular bed. It's, it's like a mere ceiling. Totally. And it's just like made of starlight, but it's got like silk sheets. And so it's like... Yeah, a- yeah exactly. <laughs> made of starlight, but covered in silk sheets. Yeah, and I was like, <laughs> and yeah, it's just a bed. And so like those like those set pieces were like whatever, but like the the real care and joy of the sex scenes themselves were like quite sweet, I thought, and well executed. There are parts of this book that are evocative of kind of like a 70s B movie in a really pleasant whimsical kind of way and not like a Mm -hmm. grody hackneyed kind of way like I think the idea of having a bed of starlight with silk sheets on it surrounded by mirrors is like just camp enough so I think that kind of brings us to our sexiest part yes do you want to go first no I want you to go first 
Okay, so obviously the Zebulon starlight bed was incredibly sexy. Um, It's also the longest sex scene. But the sex scene that sticks out to me even more than that one uh, was like the first one in Sloane's bed where we we get the explanation of the penis tentacles about the giving and receiving. <laughs> and yeah. one of the receiving tentacles envelops uh, Sloane's penis and just begins milking and sucking him off that way. And I was super surprised. <laughs> tentacles had more than one function so like that aspect of the world building was gratifying to me and then like the blowjob or tentacle job itself I thought was like just camp enough and like the reaction was both incredibly corporeal and also like funny but not like I wasn't laughing at the characters. I was, like, laughing with them. Like, this was a joyful, weird, and funny thing to see. And all of it was just, like... And then they have this weird discussion. He's like, oh, no, should I have, like, what kind of birth control are you on? (laughs) And he's like, I'm a god. I'm always, like, on birth control. I get to control my own spawning. Um, And I thought, like, that was just, you know... Everything about that scene surprised me in a good way. Um, so that's why it's my sexiest part. Very, very good. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I think it's going to be hard in this monster march that we've marched on to, like, not talk about the first sex scene as the sexiest part, because it's certainly, like, definitely, the first sex scene is kind of where all of your curiosity and bewilderment comes to bear in a monster, a steamy monster romance. Maybe we picked out a sweet one and I'm not aware of it. I don't think we did. I think they're all going to be pretty horny. The... (laughs) I want to talk about like an overarching aspect of this book that I found was very helpful in creating like a sexy like because the idea of like an immortal being I don't know what it is about them like vampires and gods where it's like wow this is like sex is obviously going to be a big part of this person and like sex that I would never permit myself to imagine in my real life right obviously like gods oversee like orgies and broad ways of thinking and I loved that there are all of these subtle subtle gestures towards a way of thinking about sexuality with like sex sexuality without sex as in genitals and genitals or like gender identity without like a physical meaning like uh his our main character his friend milo brings him tampons and it's an inside joke because one time milo broke his nose and he gave him tampons to staunch the bleeding i don't know if i've ever seen a tampon small enough to go in a nostril in uh she's the man the amanda Bynes version of 12th night she cuts it in half for a nosebleed and i was like a woman wrote that (laughs) yeah exactly um but so he brings him like tampon and the Locke slash Azathoth's uh, first reaction is to ask if there is a if they are having a minstrel celebration for Milo, who is a male identified character. I thought that and like there's lots of that like the question of like are you on birth control to the like masculine presenting god who's really just stuffed into a body with a penis, but like still, I thought that was really great. I love the sex scene in space um, that's not really in space. But yeah, I think this book does a lot to like gesture towards these kind of broad ideas or or broad for us ideas of sex and sexuality while still having like kind of a monogamous top to bottom, right? <laughs> kind of uh sexuality which a lot of people are like actually comfortable reading and so I think being able to kind of blend those two is pretty deft pretty pretty great pretty sexy 
That's why it's my sexiest part. I agree. I think that's such a that's such a good point. There's there's a conversation that they have in bed too where Sloane is asking about the human corpse that Locke is wearing. And he's like, well, if well, I, I, want, I want to give you pleasure. Should I like pleasure the human body that you're inhabiting? And he's like, I mean, you could, but it like wouldn't pleasure me the same way. So like if it was, if you wanted to be about this person's penis, that's fine. But really the way to pleasure me is to do this other thing. And I think everything that you're saying there about like a broad mindedness and like a sex without genitals or like a world where the conformist idea of gender just like it's totally meaningless to this old God was really like it was. Yeah, it was just really I felt good and I felt safe in those hands where someone was like really generously thinking about these things. That's why we should use the term lovemaking unironically. (laughs) I'm coming around to it. You are convincing me slowly but surely. My sub-project of this podcast is to get everyone who listens to start referring to sex as lovemaking. I like it. Coming around. Yeah. I think if you start to, like, think of sex as lovemaking, then your sex becomes more like lovemaking rather than anything so coarse as doing it or screwing or porking. Oh, that's the worst one. <laughs> it's also not hello. If you think about se- <laughs> if you think about sex as uh, porking, then you're gonna end up porking. If you think about love, sex as making love, then you're gonna make love. On Zebulon, language has power. Super duper, it does. So okay, so your point about the dead body brings me to my weirdest part. Okay. Which is not so much that there's more than one reanimated corpse at play in this text. It's that this text makes an attempt at explaining how Lachlan did consent to Azathoth occupying his corpse. Uh. (laughs) Because. Because Sloan is right when he points out that you're doing stuff to a body that you shouldn't. Lachlan's dead and can't give consent. Yeah, all of that. Yeah, like, I think, <laughs> I think I see slippage. Like, the, <laughs> the methods of explaining it, like, what you're actually looking for consent from is a consciousness. Now, this doesn't mean that I think, like, necrophilia is okay, because I don't. That explanation of consent like the idea that like a body remains human after it's been murdered like I know it's a human body but like it just the conversation around it like I don't expect my trickster god to be like well I'm glad you asked here's I gave it a lot of thought and a lot of reckoning right like this this is I think to a cosmic god like, we would 100% just be like a pile of meat once our consciousness ceased to zap around. And, like, a god would have, I think, very little regard, right? Because if you think about, like, seeing, like, trillions of humans come and turn to dust over the centuries. Mm-hmm. So it was weird to me that this <laughs> was, like, a topic of conversation. But it was also weird to me that, like... The reanimation of the ghoul, it was like, and also for this thing, the same situation applies. It's okay. And it's like, I was not satisfied the first time. I think it, like, the first time I heard it, I was like, I didn't need this. It's too easy to poke holes in. And I don't think the god needed it either. It's a way it's way more interesting if you problematize Sloane's relationship with the corpse, right? Because he's seeing the corpse of someone who he was sexually attracted to, and now he's pursuant to having sex with an embodiment of that person's appearance, right? Their visage. And then it's supposed to be like the same thing. Like it's okay that I used magic to put the soul back in the body because they wanted it. I don't know how you possibly could know that they wanted it. Even if they said it explicitly, like, you know, you didn't make a contractual time. I also had weird questions about this, but, like, mine, 
I tried to dismiss my weird thing about that because I think you bring up a good point. And then there is a third animated dead body, uh, which is discussed in a negative light because there isn't consent there. And it's like, well, like dubious consent to begin with. It's a, (laughs) yeah. And also like if he's a worshiper and it's his God wanting to occupy his body. Yeah. I don't know. Like, My immediate reaction was, I understand this text is trying to tell me something about the autonomy that we have as dead people. But as soon as my mind went there, my mind immediately went to, we ask for the (laughs) consent of living consciousness before they die if we can have their organs. And if they say no, those organs stay in the body and decay or get burned. And like, it doesn't matter if people need them. It doesn't matter, like, whatever. Also, dead bodies have more autonomy in that way than female bodies in lots of states in the United States. And like, as soon as my mind made that flip, <laughs> yeah. it was like, whoa, whoa, Isabeau. Is that what this book is doing? You're you're bringing a lot to this table. And like, maybe that's not. And like, once I was like. But the, but the book brings the whole thing to the it table. It does. <laughs> and since I was like, I don't have as much autonomy as this corpse. I was like. <laughs> In certain states in the United States, thank God, not Illinois. But um, the fact that the book was wrestling it, wrestling with it, made me have to wrestle with it. And I think you're right to say, like, the easy fix was like, he's a trickster god, he's a billion years old, like he doesn't care. It's it's much more interesting to problematize it, and it, I think it works a lot better as opposed to like, no, it's totally above board, and here's why. Because I don't think you can give a satisfactory question. To something like, even if you build the world, like, we know that there is, like, a heaven, right? Because it's alluded to in the end. And so Lachlan is in heaven. I'm thinking, like, if you're in heaven, what's your concern about your body, right? But then a book can't be, like, bodies don't need to give consent. Especially when the author works in a funeral home. That would be wild, um, as an embalmer, like that would be, a, you could not say that and you probably would not say that. But it's also like the, the the route, taking that pathway just creates a lot more weirdness and ick than I think is strictly necessary. I think that's right. <laughs> it's a repeated leitmotif, reanimated corpses. And that's the other thing, like how could he like... How could our hero or our like love interest sit there and like look at the what he knows to be corpse of a guy he was planning on hooking up with and just like have a conversation with it? And I think at one point he's like, isn't he going to start to stink soon? And the guy's like, no, I'm a god. And it's like, okay, so what? <laughs> The reanimation is full animation. Like, he's warm. Whatever fluids need to be pumping or pumping. Yeah. But he's also just, like, a puppet. You know, he's, like, stuffed. Like, the tentacles are just, like, stuffed in there. And, like, leaking out under sleeves somehow. But, like... Yeah, and some of them look like tattoos or, like, raised scars, and then they come out. Yeah. I thought that was a cool depiction. But also, yeah, he's, like, literally stuffed into a two-bespoke suit. Yeah. What was your weirdest part? Uh, That's all really weird. Um, The corpse politic. The corpse politic was very weird for me. I think this is also, I think, going to be one of my most unique weirdest parts. Um, Oh. Where... Sloan is driven by this. His entire life is focused around fixing and understanding his parents' murder. And so then he discovers who his parents' murderer is, and it turns out that it's this guy that had loved his mother all these years, and her his mother chose his father, and then he's like, you killed her because you were jealous. And I was like, okay. And then he's like, no, I didn't. It was like the spell gone wrong and whatever. And he's like, I want you to kill me now so that you can, so that I can atone for the sins and go to heaven because I can't have the weight of the fact that like nobody believed you when you said that your parents were murdered and that I murdered your parents. Like I can't have that weight. So I want you to kill me. 
And he's like, yeah, I'm going to fucking kill you. And it's like, I understood the rage and like, I understood like this like justice narrative was like really, really important to the character Sloane. And then the moment comes where he gets to kill the murderer and he doesn't want to do it because the guy's like, do it, do it, kill me. Like, we're going to like stop the old God from destroying the world and blah, 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 blah. And all of the pleasure of the rage and the justice has gone out of him. And he sees this person as, you know, a person who fucked up and he doesn't want to do it. And then he still does it. And it doesn't give him the feeling that he thought it would. And it's my weirdest part because it comes right at the end. Um And we'd spent so much of this book talking about Sloane's rage that for the rage to really just tumble out of him in in the moment felt odd and weird and remarkable, but it also felt really correct. Like, Sloane is not a murderer. Sloane is not a vigilante. And so for all of this buildup to then kind of go out with this, like, very realistic whimper... I thought was a really, really weird thing to do, but also a really good thing to do. Yeah, the the guy asking and then Sloane actually murdering him in a ritual is, I feel, paired with the reanimated corpse thing. It's okay because a person says it's okay is so... uh, not to go back to cannibals again, but, like, there was that cannibal who did get a guy to, like, fully commit to being cannibalized by him. And he still got arrested for murder. Like, he still committed a crime. He still did a bad thing. <laughs> I think, like, all of that's true. I think what Sloan did was wrong. And I I knew I was going to feel like it was wrong no matter what. But for the rage vigilante justice part like for that to fall away as a justification for murder I thought exposed the whole idea of murder right like (laughs) yeah stakes state sanctioned violence is bad violence against another person is bad even if you think it's justified for 25 years like you just shouldn't fucking kill people and I thought this was actually a pretty good way of talking about that Like, it was weird. It was super weird. And it was remarkable to me. All right. Womance or no mance? I'm going to go ahead and say that this is a womance. Okay. I would read other books by this person. I'm intrigued by the Sucker for Love (laughs) series. I don't think this will be the last time I investigate this author. I think there's a lot that's weird about this book and I think it's not for the faint of heart and it's certainly not as good as Strange Love or A Man of Taste but this is the first guy I mean it's better than Persephone and Hades (laughs) Neon Gods Neon Gods yes it's better than Neon Gods I was like this isn't the first god book that we've read what's that one this one's better than that one Um, I'm gonna say it's a no man's because I think you have to really dig through the bin of this book. Like, it's a little too much reading work for what I'm looking to do. Like, there are, I talked about reasons that, things that didn't, like, stand out to me. I feel like it's a good story, but, like, I can't, you gotta really squint to see the good story. I don't want to do that. I want to, like, be able to completely, like, just fall in. But I, I think, like, it, it just didn't have, like, the self-confidence that it should have had because it was a good story. It should have just been like, this is a good story. I'll tell it once. (laughs) It seemed charmed with the things that I wasn't charmed by. And it seemed self-conscious of the things I liked. So I guess we're just like not compatible. Any parting thoughts? Uh, I think this was a good way to start Monster March. Uh, We had a really great discussion. I think you surfaced a lot of things for me that I needed to think about before we embark on the rest of our monster hunting quest. Um, So thank you. This was great. So she said, what's the problem, baby? (laughs) What's the problem? I don't know. Well, maybe I'm 
not in love <laughs> with asquidentally in love. Leave, do not cut that part out. That's the best part of, that's the best thing I've ever said on this show. I won't. <laughs> that's not true, but I won't cut it out either. I promise. With that, loosen your stays. Uh, but never your principal. Your tentacles! <laughs> do you want to do that one again? No, I think that's good. leave it as it. <laughs> okay. Woli <laughs> guacamole, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womans and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womanspodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time.